Climate change is a global phenomenon. But we experience it where we live, in our homes and workplaces, streets and parks, and in our bodies, wherever they're found. For 4.2 million people, that's in Montreal. Welcome to Zone Rouge, CJLO's series about the impact of the climate crisis on Montreal. Montreal has made ambitious targets on climate change. And people in Montreal have made headlines around the world by gathering in the hundreds of thousands to demand action on climate change. But the city is going to be changed by the climate, too. of lives likely to keep growing in the years ahead and that is climate change Our this week on the series movement people live here they are here and they don't gonna go nowhere because they don't have nowhere to go and uh, climate justice is now the solution for our problems as a result of climate change tens of millions of people could be displaced worldwide by 2050 and other species are on the move as well one 2016 study of nearly 4,000 species found that nearly half were shifting their range due to climate change. Help forests adapt to climate change, which is happening too fast for the trees to keep up. Uh, researchers have it's become aware of shifts in the ranges, distribution ranges of animals in response to climate change. And since climate is warming so quickly now, these distances that they have to shift are kilometers and kilometers per decade that they need to shift. And if they cannot move quickly enough, they won't be able to adapt. We read across the world about other cities engaging in, in very strong plans within a year or two to, to really convert people to public transit or active transportation. But these are not being used here. There's a, a trickling of infrastructure being put in place here. This series was recorded on unceded indigenous land, where the Ganyagahaga Nation is recognized as the custodians of the lands and waters, and in Mi'kma'ki, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. I'm Maura Donovan. Let's get to it. Let's talk about roads. The roads that carry people through the city. The roads that crisscross landscapes. And the roads that connect and sometimes divide. Pre-dawn in Plattsburgh, New York. The gas station is also the bus stop. Specifically, let's talk about this road. Roxham Road is a one-way route out of the U.S. Uh, my name is uh, Hadi, uh, Hadi Ann. Yeah, I'm from, originally I'm from Mauritania. I left Mauritania in 2002. 
that uh, I was an activist there. I got a lot. I was arrested, and they tried to harass my family. And I was in the United States, and uh, things was really difficult for me, like a uh, couple years before uh, even Trump uh, get in power. And when he get in power, things get worse, and uh, everything was really difficult for me. Uh, at the t at the same time, we hear about the Trudeau speech saying, "Okay, Canada is a land of uh, hospitality, and uh, they are ready to 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 welcome every every everybody." And I say, "Okay, hold on, let me take this opportunity." In 2018, like thousands of other people in the last several years, he took a bus and then a 10-minute taxi to get to Roxham Road, the dead-end road that marks the crossing between New York State and Quebec. I remember that day is like today for me because I can't forget it at all. Yeah, I was with uh, two ladies, and uh, when we came just in Roxham, we, like, uh, the cops stop us and they tell us, you know, you are crossing here, and if you cross, just if you do one step, you are out of the United States and you can't go back. And they tell us, okay, if you are not ready to go back to the United States, you can cross and we cross at the same time. Like when I crossed the border, I got hope. Uh, I need just a little bit of uh, humanity in somewhere. And I think I was really, I got a big hope in Canada because I say, okay, maybe I got to have some dignity in this country. The people crossing over at Roxham Road have done so for a variety of reasons. They're fleeing war, or, like Haiti Ann, oppressive regimes, or seeking a way out of economic misery. Looking forward, they may increasingly be looking to escape the effects of climate change. For example, there's a, an institute called the Internal Displacement Monitoring Centre uh, that keeps annual data for around the world. And it shows that on average about 24 million people each year around the world are displaced for environmental reasons. And that fluctuates from one year to the next. And we know that the, the main drivers are floods and extreme storm events. Those are the big two. Then droughts and wildfires and so on, they follow uh, behind. And as the climate changes, as we continue deforesting the tropics, um, what's happening is that these uh, hazards are occurring more often uh, and with greater severity. This is Robert McLemon. I'm a professor of environmental studies at Wilfrid Laurier University. McLemon says the environment can impact migration in several ways. And so there are clear-cut uh, examples of where people have to move for environmental reasons. So, for example, uh, Hurricane Dorian last year uh, leveled um, several islands in the Bahamas. And so the people were displaced and ended up having to relocate to other islands to find shelter. Well, it's pretty clear that an environmental factor was the driver of that migration. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, you might have people whose livelihoods um, are directly or indirectly affected by environmental factors. So, for example, um, it doesn't happen so often here in North America anymore, but in low income countries, uh, a farmer who experiences a drought and loses uh, household income because of that, uh, you know, may migrate temporarily to the city to find some wage paying labor to earn enough money to then go back and resume farming once the drought is over. So there's this wide spectrum. Much of the discussion of climate migration has focused on climate change refugees. But climate change doesn't currently factor in to the UN definition of who counts as a refugee, 
nor are there any provisions to claim asylum in Canada based on climate change. Either way, only a tiny fraction of the people who immigrate to Canada do so as refugees. Yet even among those who have the resources to navigate and tick boxes in the Canadian immigration system, McLemon's research suggests that climate can be a factor. And so, for example, in the Haitian community, which is very widely represented in Montreal, uh, our researcher found that the people who come to Canada from Haiti are typically urbanites themselves. They're coming from Port-au-Prince or other cities in Haiti, and they themselves do not directly experience environmental hazards in Haiti, apart from the earthquakes, which is not really a something you can control. But um, but you know deforestation and floods and and things like that. That's more of a rural problem in Haiti. Um, and so urbanites don't directly experience the impacts, but they do expect experience it indirectly because what happens is when you have a drought or when you have a flooding event, you get this extra surge of people into the cities and that places extra demand on uh, demand for jobs and shelter and food and sanitation and so on. And what it does is these cities are already buckling under the weight of rapidly growing populations. And so it sort of has that incremental influence on a young, skilled professional who's thinking, you know, maybe or maybe I should go to Canada. Maybe now's the time. In the case of Bangladeshis, it was much more direct. Um, almost all of our participants in that uh, part of the project came from Dhaka City, the largest city in, um, in Bangladesh, where there are huge problems with air quality, food uh, security, both in terms of availability, but also food quality. Uh, lack of green space. There was a long list of environmental problems that people were talking about, lack of sanitation, lack of potable water, and so on. But one of the clear things we found is that the people who are coming to Canada, because of our immigration system, tend to be skilled workers, reasonably well-educated people with a bit of money in their pockets, at least by their own local standards. So we are not seeing in our immigration system and our immigration flows um, you know, destitute people who are being directly displaced by floods and storms and so on. They are migrating, but within their own countries. And that's sort of consistent with the global picture where most environmental migration takes place within countries and is typically rural to urban in nature. Um, we don't see a lot of really long distance international environmental migration for the main reason that the people who are most adversely effective, affected typically do not have the resources, financial or social networks, to, to undertake such a long journey. What we could see, McLemon thinks, is more countries looking to Canada to resettle refugees. So it'll sort of like be, you know, the Syrian um, crisis where Canada took in, uh, I believe, 25,000 uh, refugees. Um, you know, Germany took in nearly a million. Um, we're going to see more events like that in the future where the international community turns to countries like Canada and Germany and says, can you do more? The other part of Canada's response to the increase in climate migration is to help countries grow their economies and adapt to climate change so that their citizens aren't forced to leave their homes in the first place. Canada's already gone through this transition, including after the Dust Bowl migration in the 1930s. And we've emitted huge amounts of fossil fuels along the way. So it's only fair that we pay it forward. We know a lot more about what makes people vulnerable in the first place. And it's not simply the fact that they live in a hazardous location, but also um, it has a lot to do with the social and economic situation and context in which they live. 
Um, and so one of the reasons we had such large-scale displacement in Western Canada in the 1930s was the confluence of the drought and the Great Depression, where households simply had no, there were no social protections, there were no social safety nets for households. Um, and so they were left to adapt and survive on their own. Um, and so the reason we don't have those types of large-scale displacement events now is that collectively as a society, we have invested in the necessary social safety nets to make sure that rural people can continue to pursue rural livelihoods um, despite the inevitable variations in the climate. Um, there's a lot of countries out there that have not yet done so. Um, you know, Ethiopia, for example, one of the fastest growing populations in Africa, um, struggling to maintain uh, political stability and maintain a functioning democracy. And, uh, you know, the vast majority of people still pursue subsistence livelihoods or low income uh, livelihoods. And so we've been through that. So we can help communities and countries like that make that transition. So I hope that that's one of the, the lessons that we learn uh, from our own past is that uh, nobody can do this alone. Um, you get through this by pulling together. Um, and so we did it by pulling together as a national community. Now we need to get through it by pulling together as an international community. Unfortunately, when you see what's going on world these days, it's easy to be pessimistic about that sort of spirit. Haiti Ann, who now lives in Montreal, is feeling some of that pessimism too. After he took that first step over the border at Roxham Road in 2018, full of hope for a new life, he ran smack into the reality of being a racialized immigrant in Canada. Today, I'm telling you, all that hope is, uh, is gone. It's gone. Because uh, what I've seen now in this uh, place wasn't really uh, the things I got in my mind before I get here. Even though Anne got a work permit and was able to find work in Montreal, he hasn't lost his fear of being deported. And he hears from people facing an even worse situation as undocumented migrants. Myself, um, I'm still, I still in the situation where I got a work permit. You know, I got a good job, I got my car, I got my apartment, but I see something else on our side. And I talk to a lot of people who don't, who don't have any status. And you got slavery in this country now because you got some women who are sick and they are explored, but they can't talk to anybody because they're scared of being held and, and deported. You got uh, some people who work in a firm, but they can't do nothing. They can't do nothing. Some, some, sometimes they don't get paid, but they can talk about it. I don't have word for that, you know, because I never think in Canada something like this can happen here in Canada. Climate change could lead to more people willing to take the risk of being undocumented. And since being undocumented often means being unprotected, it also creates risks for those who are already living and working in Canada. That's why Anne, who works with solidarity across borders, says that Canada's approach to climate change migration needs to involve providing status to those already living in places like Montreal. It's very simple. People live here. They are here and they don't gonna go nowhere because they don't have nowhere to go. It's very simple. Give these people a status. Status for all is a, 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 a solution of, of, this, uh, of this problem. Give them studies, let them work, give them access to the, 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 the health care, let them speak out, 
don't let them be exploited and stop a little bit stop a little bit to 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 destroy our, our planet one positive and says is that the growing awareness of increased displacement from climate change means more people see climate justice as inextricable from migrant yeah. justice. Roxham Road is the way to a better life, they believe, better than the reality they leave behind. As the climate changes, it's not only people that are on the move. Many species are migrating away from the equator in search of cooler temperatures. And that puts some of them on a collision course with an increasingly sprawling Montreal. So let's keep following roads, specifically these roads, the tangle of highways that make up the Turcotte Interchange. The interchange was originally built in the 1960s amid a rise of car culture in Montreal. About 300,000 cars now pass through here every day, many of them on their way to and from the ever-sprawling Montreal suburbs. My name is Jochen Jäger. I'm originally from Germany, and I have been working now at Concordia University for 13 years in the field of landscape fragmentation, landscape change, urban sprawl, and road ecology. And my master's student, Nachmin Nazarnea, was interested in this. Um, and she did a study about urban sprawl in Montreal from 1951 to 2011. So really time series of the 60 years. And it shows very clearly that basically there was no urban sprawl in Montreal in the 50s. And then it started slowly in the 60s. And in the 70s, it got really fast. And then in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s, it accelerated even further. It's probably going to get even worse, even though planning institutions in Montreal have understood that urban sprawl is not a good thing, it should be avoided. Um, There's still more and more areas with one single family homes being constructed and with COVID-19, people are asking for larger homes and they don't want to necessarily live downtown so much anymore. They want to live outside where they have a nice garden and can be safe from crowded areas. So this trend is probably going to continue even more, even though transit-oriented development has been promoted by Montreal more and more, but much stronger efforts would be needed to be able to be successful. According to research in Jaeger's lab, urban sprawl in Montreal increased by 26 times from 1971 to 2011. Jaeger says this sprawl poses two problems. It paves over valuable habitat, and it turns the remaining habitat into a high-speed obstacle course with deadly consequences for both existing biodiversity and the species that are trying to move to escape the effects of climate change. Both are important. So the destruction of habitat um, and also the disruption of of, uh, movement corridors. Um, Maybe the easiest example to think of is for amphibians. Amphibians need to stay in one place for the winter and then they need to find Mm -hmm. a breeding pond in the summer. And so they usually move between those two locations, sometimes even more locations, but typically in the spring to the breeding opportunity, some pond, and then back into a forest, for example, for the winter and later in the year. And uh, when there is a road constructed in this path that they have to move, then a lot of amphibians are getting killed every time they have to cross the road. And as soon as traffic volumes are of any 
significant level, there's almost no amphibian that can cross the road alive. It isn't just urban sprawl that's increasing. The number of cars on the road in Montreal is on the rise as well. Between 2013 and 2018, the number of vehicles in the city rose by nearly 7%, faster than population growth. And transportation makes up nearly half of Quebec's greenhouse gas emissions. To counter that, the province's new climate change plan includes a ban on the sale of gas cars by 2035, and a continuation of the subsidy for electric vehicles. Critics have pointed out that this does nothing to reduce car dependence and urban sprawl. In a similar way, Jaeger says the technological fixes for the damage caused by roads, such as fences along highways and protected wildlife corridors, are pointless when the land itself is completely covered with pavement. Some people think as long as we put mitigation measures along roads, then we can construct roads everywhere, even in biodiversity hotspots. And uh, that's just wrong. So that has happened basically over the last 10 years, that this awareness of the importance of corridors, ecological connectivity has increased quite a bit. Um, So that's a good thing. The big question will be, will it make a difference on the ground? Of course, when we have roads and need to really build urgently a new road, then it should have fences to prevent wildlife mortality and it should have wildlife passages, overpasses and underpasses, so animals can still cross and the corridors are um, kept in place um, for the animals. But that doesn't justify that we now can build roads just everywhere. Canada has the most amount of roads per person on the planet. And Canada is still constructing more roads. If we have already the most roads on the planet per person, and we still need more roads, when we will when will we ever say we have enough? I think we should stop constructing roads, but of course nobody wants to hear that. And there's so much to do, right? So many tasks, so much work ahead to get it right and find different ways, different a new lifestyle that depends less on cars and all these things. So that's, there's a lot of of work to do ahead. Here's another road, part of that new lifestyle and the challenges associated with it. Specifically this road in NDG, where the green posts that once marked a bike lane along the street have disappeared. It's a bit unfortunate because we've been fighting for years for safer paths and crossings for intersections. Um, so that they did implement such a, a, a measure on Telvon Street, a pilot project, but even that one was withdrawn within a month, so far before uh, it was due, and this was quite disappointing. Jason Savard is with the Association of Cyclists and Pedestrians of NDG, where a protected bike lane briefly existed on Terbon Street this past summer. And we, you know, this is a small street, a small pilot project, not even to last long, and it was scrapped uh, for parking. So, you know, there was no climate perspective on that. Montreal aims to increase the number of trips taken by bike by 15%. That means increasing the number of bike paths, including through the Express Bike Network, which aims to create nearly 200 kilometers of paths across the island to link up with local bike lanes. But the experience of the short-lived bike path on Terrebonne Street shows that creating even a tiny part of a network can be complicated. 
this was just one street. Uh, it was literally one percent of the borough here. So this is again, you know, why that that tailbone bike path that was abolished is disconcerting because we have an increase of new cyclists who are not comfortable uh, biking, and this is one way to to uh, to uh, encourage new new cyclists. So this, the, what trumped it was the the parking, and that was quite unfortunate. We read across the world about other cities engaging in, in very strong plans within a year or two to, to really convert people to public transit or active transportation. And we see these are drastic and encouraging methods, but these are not being used here. There's a, a trickling of, of uh, infrastructure being put in place here. There, there are some measures like increase uh, the parking permits for the size of the vehicles uh this is okay it's small things to to dissuade people but we need much more concrete bolder actions like we tried to implement a, a bike path on one street in this borough but we our plan is we got like 20 arteries that would need bike paths so we have we need a grid we need to safely get people from one side to the other and just this one street's not going to cut it with Terrebonne street and elsewhere some have complained that by removing parking spaces, bike lanes pose problems for people with limited mobility. My name is Jody Negley, and I use a power wheelchair for the past uh, 40 years or so. And, uh, you know, learned the hard way um, just by my own experiences uh, to what extent the city is not accessible. Negley is an accessibility advocate. She says when it comes to the accessibility of active transit, the picture is more nuanced. Before I started using the wheelchair and, you know, I thought this trans transition for, you know, a very long time. So I was walking with a cane and it was very unsteady. It was very risky and it was very painful. So there's only so much so far I could go. So I think of a lot of seniors um, and people with reduced mobility, but who are not in a power wheelchair, which is kind of a privilege that they're still um, not keeping those people in mind. The, the good thing is that, you know, certainly the um, bike network that's being built um, is going to benefit people who use power wheelchairs, but the needs of people who have reduced mobility or any other type of disability certainly, you know, won't benefit from from that network. Savard says these issues can be solved by, for instance, increasing handicapped parking at intersections with streets where parking has been removed, or allowing cars to stop temporarily in bike lanes. Meanwhile, he says increased cycling infrastructure, including, he hopes, a permanent path on Terrebonne, can bring widespread benefits while helping Montreal meet its targets on climate change. Uh, you make it clear, uh, people will use it. That that has been in studies that we've seen, and, and now we're seeing it happen. Same happened for the Terrebonne. We saw the number of cyclists use it. We saw first-time cyclists. We saw people who said they would never recycle. They used it. They're like, wow, this is more secure. Even drivers noticed it was more tranquil the streets. So once you implement it, the, the, it follows the research. Uh, people find it more secure and it's safer. There is no defense for climate. Uh, if you're going to say, uh, why use a car? Why is it a bicycle? It's, it's hands down that it's going to be the bicycle all the time. 
The creation of Montreal's cycling network has been slow to get started. It runs through a city that is still sprawling outward too fast and continues to be a difficult place for those trying to navigate Canada's immigration system. But there are signs of change, glimmers of hope, that Montreal is on the road to a better future. Cars aren't only a problem because of urban sprawl and habitat destruction. Pollution from vehicle traffic interrupts sleep and damages the lungs of Montrealers. We really focus on the uh, dioxide nitrogen, one of the main pollutants that, that come from transportation. And that was the main pollutant related to the exposition of uh, low-income individuals in Montreal. We, we have found the biggest environmental inequities in line with this pollutant. Air pollution, plastics, and a zero-waste future. That's next time on Zone Rouge. This episode was produced by me, Maura Donovan, with production help from Zoe Bailey Stetson. Until next time. <laughs>